The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. I'm not going to really do much of an opener at all because we're going to talk to somebody who knows a lot more about what's going on than I do. So Jen O'Malley Dillon is a veteran of democratic uh, politics and progressive causes. Uh, she's led campaigns, led organizations. Uh, I worked very closely with her back in, in 2008 when she joined us. She had been working for John Edwards uh, to help lead our battleground states effort. And then she served as our deputy campaign manager for President Obama in 2012, managed Better Our Works campaign during the primary this year, and now as Joe Biden's campaign manager. She's actually was a guest on this podcast a few months ago uh, after she had uh, been Beto O'Rourke's campaign manager and was talking to her about the race and how she saw the primaries. But uh, she signed on to run Joe Biden's campaign a few months ago and has really had to do a heroic job because it's hard enough to pivot from primary to general and to go build a general election campaign, particularly when you're facing an incumbent president with all the money and the weaponry that, that Trump's built. But to do it in the middle of a pandemic where you've got to figure out how to run a campaign that may be all virtual, maybe it's a blend. So uh, she really had to do a really unique job that no one's had to do uh, previously. So I want to talk to her about some of that, but really just go deep with Jen on the race. We, we see all the things happening in the country, the way we've mismanaged the pandemic response, the state of the American economy, Trump doing all the wrong things around his response to George Floyd's uh, murder and the protests around the country. Um, he's holding this rally in Tulsa over the weekend, which you know could be the deadliest rally in American history. Let's hope that's not the case. But, um, you know, the remedy to so much of this, it's not going to solve all problems, of course, uh, but is we have to get this guy out of office. And so how the Biden campaign sees the campaign today, where they see the Electoral College, how you all can help, what are their biggest concerns? I think this is all not just critical to whether the campaign wins or loses. And even for those of you that are living and breathing the campaign, it's really important to the history of the country and the world. And so I'm, I'm really eager to have Jen on the program to talk about where she sees the race, how she's planning for you know different scenarios in the fall, whether there'll be debates or not, whether there's going to be a lot of in-person campaigning or not, and talk about some of her bigger concerns uh, and some of the opportunities they're seeing out there. And, and there's clearly a lot of them uh, with Trump's numbers softening. So I, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jen O'Malley Dillon. Jen O'Malley Dillon, welcome back to Campaign HQ. Hey, Pluff. How are you? Uh, well, I'm doing better since I know you're going to 
deliver us a new president and get the menace out of office. So I think about that every day that I'm, I'm so pleased that you took on this responsibility. But let's start. You know, you have a lot of different strengths. Um, which we'll get to. But, you know, one of the things I've enjoyed through the years talking to you about is, you know, really going deep into states, which is ultimately what this is about. You know, this is a campaign to accumulate enough votes in enough places to get to 270 electoral votes. And so I love for you to bring people up to date on where you see the Electoral College map right now. Um, I think, you know, incredibly positively, there's a lot more states now that seem to be within reach of the vice president, which is terrific. But I know you're always so focused on making sure, you know, you are focused most intently on the tipping point states. So just talk a little bit about, I know you've got multiple pathways now, but kind of where you see the Electoral College today. Yeah, absolutely. As you know, I could talk about the map all day long. Um, but, you know, I think where we where we look and where we think we're set up is a pretty expansive map in 2020. And as you know, you are well aware, more than most, uh, our goal is to have as many pathways to 270 as possible that we don't have to, nor can we afford to um, just focus on one or two states. We really have to make sure that we're building a foundation and a program for the general election that allows us to keep as many states in play as possible. And that really is uh, something where we're thinking about it from the work we're doing in the states to our strategy. But also, um, we really believe we're going to be able to be on offense um, this cycle because of the map we're looking at and that we think it, it favors the vice president. So, you know, the way I approach that is, first of all, looking at the pathway that allows us to get to our winning uh, coalition. So you have a handful of states that are states we need to protect. They're states we won in 8 and 12 and 16. These are states like New Hampshire, Colorado, Virginia, Nevada. Many people have said these are safe states. And uh, to be honest with you, I, I don't buy that. Um, they're only going to be safe if we do the work to ensure that they will. But they have been in our side for the last three presidentials, and we feel good about that. So if you, you know, if you look at those states, that gets us over um, about 230 electoral votes. And then you go to the traditional states we talk about as swing states. You know, these are the places that are, um, you know, we don't have to win all of them. Um, we won in 2008 and 12. Most of these um, lost in 16. You know, the Wisconsin's, Michigan's, Pennsylvania's, Florida's, Ohio's. Um, these are the states that are very polarized electorates. Uh, they are swing states because they are swing states um, and they go back and forth. Um, that uh, really allows us to make sure we're contemplating what's that tipping point state? You know, what happens, uh, you know, if we're putting two or three of these in play? Um, certainly, you know, depending on the number of electoral votes uh, allows us to have, you know, a, a difference based on do we need three? Do we need four? Do we need two? Um, but then I, I just add to um, this really does feel like a, a map that is broader than that, broader than the swing states and states like Arizona in particular, but also Georgia and Texas. And certainly if you're looking at recent polling, um, you know, are really in play. And Arizona is truly a battleground state for the first time uh, by my uh, way of looking at it. And it's both from the trends. We've seen that go from 12 to now where it is increasingly uh, getting better for Democrats. We saw Maricopa County, where Phoenix is, uh, go for a federal candidate, Democrat, um, for the first time in 18. And there's just been an extraordinary amount of foundation with strong candidates, strong Democratic candidates, Mark Kelly running this cycle, I, that I think really gives us a significant advantage. So, you know, looking at that map makes us feel like 
We have a number of pathways to victory. We've got to build the plan and the program to ensure that we keep all of those on as long as possible, but that we are really uh, on offense here uh, in ways that, frankly, I hadn't even anticipated uh, earlier in the year. Right. No, I think, you know, right now anyway, and you point out um, a lot could change, you have a lot more margin for error than Trump does. So let's talk about, um, you know, I'm sure you're the first person uh, to say that you don't think Joe Biden's up by 15 in Michigan, right? But but, but let's let's say the map holds constant uh, to 16, but you guys get Michigan over to your side. Pennsylvania is going to be a real battle, but let's say you get that. Then you're sitting at 268. And I do think to you, you mentioned that a few months ago, the battleground map didn't look this broad. I think there was a view for most of this cycle that, you know, if you win Michigan and Pennsylvania, as hard as those will be, you know, Wisconsin's your tipping point state. You just talked about Arizona. Florida seems like it's it's absolutely winnable, uh, certainly competitive right now. So it seems like there's several states that are in the competition for tipping point state. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. I think, you know, it's also important to remember that, um, you know, history isn't as much of a driver in this cycle as maybe we have traditionally seen. And so while, you know, exactly as, as you're saying, uh, Florida, um, you know, Wisconsin um, are definitely um, going to continue to be part of that tipping point um, uh, state. So is Arizona. I mean, so is, I mean, North Carolina. I mean, there's a poll out uh, yesterday in Iowa or over the weekend, I guess, that had us down one in, in Iowa. Um, so the, the reality is that, um, you know, part of what we need to do is make sure that we're constantly looking at this because I think there is a lot of uncertainty here. And also, you know, this is, this is, we always say every cycle is a unique cycle, but there is probably uh, not been one, certainly in a pandemic uh, with an economic crisis and, uh, you know, a, a crisis of uh, systemic racism uh, that has uh, been part of how we have to organize and campaign. And, and we really have to have maximum flexibility there. But I think Florida, always a key battleground state, uh, is certainly the case here. I think Wisconsin um, continues to be a place that um, you know, we're going to do a lot of work. We're going to stay very closely connected. Arizona is right up there, though, at this in the same breath, um, you know, as is is uh, North Carolina. And as you mentioned, Pennsylvania, obviously uh, an important state for the vice president, a place that uh, we have a long history. But Donald Trump spent a ton of money there and has spent a lot of time. Uh, he did that in 16 and has stayed there. So none of these places can we take for granted. But I do think that as you look at our strategy, um, we got to have to build a customized approach in each of these places. These states are very different. They require different level work. There's always the question that campaigns have to answer. How do you go all in in a place like Florida or uh, in a Pennsylvania, very significantly uh, large populations and incredibly diverse populations that there's not even one um, you know, statewide fix to how you uh, you put those states on the map and keep them on the map. Uh, and we know that those states in particular are going to be places that uh, Trump's going to have to fight it out with us. But, you know, noticeably, uh, some of the recent advertising that Trump's been doing is is less on those offensive states and more on shoring up Iowa and, and Ohio. And so um, we're very mindful of that as well. Though I will say to your earlier point, we are not up 15 in Michigan. We are not up 14, um, you know, and, and I, just to like prevent, as you would say, the bedwetting that is to come uh, when those numbers narrow, uh, we are in an inflated uh, point in terms of what polling's picking up. And, and you always have to take polling with a grain of salt. But this is going to be a very close race. 
everyone needs to understand that it's going to be a close race nationally. It's going to get tighter. It's going to get tighter in these states. And that's what we expect and we'll be prepared for. Uh, but we are not up 14. Yeah. So I want to go back to states in a minute, but let's talk about the polling because, um, you know, the leads that you have right now are larger than we have in 12. But as you remember, when you were serving as our deputy campaign manager for Barack Obama, you know, in September of that year, particularly after Romney's uh, 47%, you know, gaffe, um, you know, we were leading by um, ridiculous margins. But our assumption was most of those people who had left Romney were going to come back to him. And so is that, I, I think, for people out there who are giddy about these polls, I mean, you know, for the most part, you guys are in states, you know, maybe you're 48, 49, 50. There's a couple 51. But when Trump's down at 42 or 43, my assumption, and I hope I'm wrong, but my assumption is a lot of those people have kind of parked undecided or even soft Biden, but they'll come back. I mean, is that how you guys are looking at it? Because I think there's a I am a little bit worried that, you know, people are getting um, super excited about these numbers. And, you know, you'd much rather have them than not. But when you look at how these votes ultimately come down on Election Day, it seems to me you're going to see some tightening. Oh, for sure. I mean, look, uh, polling is a snapshot of a moment in time, and we are certainly in an inflection point in this country. Uh, but they, these numbers will tighten. And I, I agree, you have to assume uh, that the different um, you know, sides will go back to where they normally sit. Uh, and so we expect that. Um, we also, uh, though, see in the numbers, I think some pretty positive signs that we have a lot of work to do around, but that showcase, I think, the unique strength that the vice president has. Um, you know, we have often talked about how do you build that path to victory in each of these states, and it's it's a combination of you know the folks you have to turn out. It's the combination of how you expand the electorate and also people that you want to bring on your side. You know, if, if I think about what's happening, there's definitely a lot of erosion um, that Trump is is getting from his base. You know, he's he's got a floor. It's it's a very a uh, strong, uh, enthusiastic base that he carries, but around the, the margin that he still lost some, uh, in particular with, um, uh, you know, non-college educated white voters, we're, we're seeing some significant drops from what he had in 16. But um, importantly, if you look at seniors and older voters, um, you know, the vice president's running about 15 points better than Democrats did in 2016 among voters 65 and older. So to your point, um, you know, we expect that's a that's a, obviously a, a very significant uptick than we've seen historically. But we also are looking at what's happening in COVID. And certainly, um, you know, if you think about people that have in, been impacted by what's happening, I mean, there's nobody that's not impacted by what's happening in this country and globally. But seniors in particular um, have had, uh, you know, an inordinate, um, you know, uh, response to what's going on uh, and impact on their lives and and see that leadership reflected uh, negatively for Trump. So I think there's opportunity in the numbers. I think they are reflecting a unique capability and support that the vice president has both to mobilize our base, uh, you know, and and we need to make sure that's as much for the vice president as it is against Trump, but then also um, really to kind of peel away some of the historical support that um, uh, the, the that President Trump has had, and and really to make sure that we're making the case to what we would call disaffected voters who you know have been moving away from Democrats, the Obama Trump voters, for instance. Um, I think the vice president can uniquely speak to them from 
who he is as a leader, what people know about him, and and a reminder that there's still a lot we can fill in around the vice president that people don't know. They don't know his leadership during recovery. They don't know, um, you know, as much of his personal story as as some of us that know him well think. So I think that the numbers show a real opportunity, but they are inflated. They are also something that we always take with a grain of salt, and we do assume uh, that there is going to just be heavy tightening that moves across. Um, you know, the next several months. And and frankly, we always talk about the fall being a place when people start paying attention more, right? The the Labor Day uh, timeframe of, of starting to really click in uh, as voters are, are looking to this choice. We have a much more polarized electorate right now. People have made their decisions in a lot of ways. So there is less flex than we saw in 16. Um, but because of the uncertainty of what's happening with the economy and the country, um, I think we're going to be looking at that very closely as we get into the fall. Right. So let's just talk about seniors for a minute. So those are, I think, of, of everything we're seeing right now, kind of the most surprising numbers. And I think if they were to hold, it's almost a checkmate for Trump or really any Republican. And I agree, you know, Joe Biden, I think, has unique appeal to those folks. Uh, this is the part of the population that has been most affected and most concerned from a health standpoint. Do you think those numbers can stay where they are today? And I guess more importantly, what are you guys planning to do to, to try and accomplish that? Well, look, I, you know, again, I think as, as you and I were just talking about, I think, you know, things will get back to a little bit more closely aligned to their natural state as we move forward. Um, but I, I think that the numbers, the polling we're seeing in Iowa that has it close, um, you know, Ohio, Florida, uh, where we're ahead. I mean, there is no doubt real impact on the top line numbers because seniors are looking more favorably at Vice President Biden than they are at Trump. Um, and, uh, you know, I think for us, you know, this is my philosophy with everything. We've got to do the work uh, to make sure that we maintain these numbers and, and we make this not just a, a one-time inflection, but uh, a sustained, uh, you know, place of strength. And to do that, I think it is, um, you know, it's in some ways it's it's relatively simple. It is driving our message. It is running our game plan. Uh, you know, we believe this race is a referendum on Donald Trump, uh, and we know that Donald Trump does not want that uh, to be the case. Uh, at the same time, uh, we know we have to make the case for what we're going to do as president. Uh, we're going to have to tackle uh, the economy and jobs. We, um, you know, are doing a lot of work, and Vice President's been laying out his position on. Um, you know, reopening. And, and you know, he, he says that, you know, Donald Trump's plan for reopening is, is one point. It's to reopen. And there's not much work to support that. I think that there are real um, concerns that Americans have seniors and others about Trump, um, about who he's fighting for, um, about the fact that, you know, there is uh, what I would say is a corrupt recovery, um, you know, that nobody even knows who got the small business loans. Uh, those things uh, are really important to continue to reinforce um, the questions that people have about Donald Trump and his leadership, which have been brought to, to the forefront. But I also think we have to make sure that we're very clear about what what are what the vice president's administration is going to look like and fight for and how he's going to um, lead the recovery as he did previously with President Obama um, uh, to bring the economy back uh, and to you know uniquely address what's happened with coronavirus and how we um, you know are specifically focused on seniors you know whether it's uh, work with um, broader testing and contact tracing, but also nursing homes and and you know uh, our plans moving forward. So I think there's a real opportunity to have a very specific conversation here 
uh, and to do it in a way that that really is addressing both Trump's weaknesses, but our uh, our strengths and our ability to lay out a plan um, that could be executed in office. Right. So just back to states for for a couple of minutes. So uh, I think it's important for people uh, to understand who are following the race carefully and working so hard on Joe Biden's behalf that you're at a place now, it seems like, where obviously you're going to fight with everything you've got to win Pennsylvania, win Michigan, Wisconsin. But there are now scenarios where let's say you just won Michigan and lost Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, sadly. You win the presidency by picking up Arizona and Florida, right? So you've, and I'm curious, So, um, in, and I don't think this is likely to happen, but in a scenario where you basically, let's say, uh, win Michigan and win Pennsylvania, you're sitting at 268, you lose everything else. But you win back that northern Maine congressional district and pick up the Omaha one. I mean, are you guys now making plans and resource allocations based on, you know, you've got the Midwest path, you've got the Sunbelt path, you've got win them all. But do you also have to have like the break glass, which is if things go south, how do we just get to 270? Like talk, talk to people a little bit about that, because that's kind of the chess match that's so important in these things. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, ultimately... Um, we're just focused on getting over 270, uh, right, or getting to 270. So I think, you know, there's really important conversations about, um, you know, how do you have a very broad playing field? And that's the way we approach it, right? We start from a standpoint of putting as many states as possible, including Nebraska too, including Maine too, um, where, uh, you know, we are looking at what is the baseline that we start with? What does it take? to get to our path to victory. So in each state and each um, place that we're building program, there's a unique formula of work that we have to do in order to hit our win number. And I really root everything in the work. Um, so what do we have to do and how do we do it? And how do you think about that from every angle? Do you, how do you think about it from uh, the, the voter contact side, from organizing to uh, paid advertising to trips and resource allocation to uh, the vice president, Dr. Biden's time. Um, you know, you sort of go through all of those exercises. And, you know, at the end of the day, our expectation is the map narrows. And we also are, um, you know, building a foundation that allows us the maximum flexibility. So when we start to see things that are moving, we start to see things that are uh, picking up, or we see conversely things that are dropping off that we have what we need to quickly and nimbly uh, readjust. Um, and I think that, that that's the, the broader strategy that we're working on. You know, we do have to go through scenarios, as you're suggesting, which is, you know, okay, maybe this isn't going to be uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin play, uh, hypothetically. How do, we, how do we reconsider that? How do we think about um, all right, uh, let's look at a strategy that puts Arizona much higher up there. And again, we're working with states that we don't traditionally have to, which gives us some real opportunity to think about that and to think about not just within the state, but how the demographic makeup of our support is. Uh, and so we're looking at that as well. We're not just having a state-by-state -state strategy alone. We're also looking at it in conjunction with a strategy around our core audiences. Um, how are we continuing to uh, manage our programming and thinking about uh, what we're doing uh, with African-Americans and Latinos. And, and, and that work, you know, is often talked about as a GOTV play. And I, I will say out loud, and you will see this reflected in the funding decisions we're making and the strategic decisions. Um, we don't believe that that's the case. We need to be doing the work now with those core constituencies and be able to make sure that we are both not making assumptions, um, you know, that, that suggest 
that we are where we are without doing the work. And that a lot of uh, these audiences, we've got to do persuasion work, not just uh, turnout work. So, you know, that's some of the thinking on the scenario play that um, comes to mind and really kind of mapping out that and, and efficiency. Now, look, I don't think you can put an ROI on a vote in the way you can from a, another industry or a business standpoint. I think when you do that, you cut corners uh, and it just doesn't work that way. You have to be able to make sure that you're looking at data as a core input efficiency and resource allocation obviously is critical, but we also have to make sure that we're pulling anecdotal assessment. Um, I think that's something that you know we learned in 16, where you could start feeling some of the movement on the ground in some of these states, and it wasn't being popped up in the data or um, reflective in some of the polls. And um, I don't think we were able to maneuver as soon as we need to. So we're, we're also being mindful of that, which is very complicated when we're in a bit more of a, a virtual operation there. Um, you know, we're also looking at the other pieces that are going on in the states. You know, there is a lot of work that's taking place in a number of these states, whether it is um, our state parties and, uh, you know, our local organizations that are just much more organized and earlier uh, built than uh, historically, or, you know, in Arizona, a really incredibly strong a Senate campaign built off of a, a previously competitive Senate campaign that just allows for a foundation of work that, you know, it, it might mean for us, if you put all of those characteristics together, strong organization, motivated, you know, motivated base, um, real opportunity to work up and down the ticket, uh, you know, uh, cost consciousness in terms of, of markets, um, you know, real reach uh, in a way that Trump's not able to do. Very strong contrast. You can kind of list it off. A, a localized element, Michigan is a great example of that. Um, our numbers are reflected in that high in part because of uh, Trump and the way he's addressed Michigan as much as our strength there. So those are all the kind of characteristics and factors that we are working off of. And that's how ultimately we build those unique um, paths to victory. But I, I, I agree with you. We have to be very conscious that the historical pathways don't have to be our pathways. All we need to do is get to 270 electoral votes. And I, I'm not really all that interested in how we do it. I just right. want us to do it. <laughs> no romance. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear you make the point about ROI and votes. I think that's something, particularly in the donor community, everybody's driving toward. And, and we have to understand it's art and science. And some of the factors you talked about uh, aren't really going to be picked up on the science side of things. So having a broad battleground map, I think, is mostly a blessing, but it can be a curse, right? Because it takes an enormous amount of money and an enormous amount of people resources. And I think this is for people listening who are thinking whether they should give another 20 $25 if they have the ability to do that or, or do a little more volunteer time, you're going to make decisions on whether you can go into a place like Georgia, Texas, or Ohio, um, you know, based not just in what you're seeing in terms of winnability, but sadly, resource constraints, right? So let's give people a window into this. So Florida, which is probably going to be a core battleground state for you, um, uh, you know, let's talk about what it takes to win Florida, because it's going to take more to win Texas. It's going to take a lot to win Georgia. Just the, the types of money and the types of organization you need to really contest a, a, a state like that. Yeah, no, I think that's such an important point. I mean, you know, it is as much as you're saying a blessing and a challenge, an opportunity and a challenge for us with an expanded map um, and, you know, the resource allocation of that and not getting distracted by things that are close or could be there, um, but that are so costly that that pulls away from our, our core requirements. And so that even goes back to not just these swing states, but, you know, New Hampshire, it's a small state. It's a state that has been trending democratic, but but you know in in um, 
in 16, you know, we won it by like a thousand votes or, or something smaller. And so, and it, and it's expensive because you have the mass, the Boston media market. So we can't, we have to make sure that, you know, as I would say, you don't get lost in some of the bells and whistles of resource allocation um, and not, you know, make sure that you have what you need on the foundation. You know, and that really it gets difficult when you're talking about these big states like a Florida. You know, Florida media markets, I think there's 10 of them in the state. Um, you know, Florida is, uh, you know, such a complex and diverse state. Uh, it is a state that has, you know, inc- incredibly strong, uh, large demographic groups that we need to think about. Um, you know, as we talk about our Latino and Hispanic strategy, um, there are no monoliths there uh, or anywhere, frankly, um, with any type of voter. But you have, you know, certainly what we talk about a lot, the Puerto Rican community, you have the Cuban community, but you also have the Venezuelan community, you have um, Mexican-Americans, you have significant pockets throughout the state of um, strong um, uh, demographic groups that that we have to do work on. And you can't just say, OK, well, we'll put an ad up in Florida and that will cover our work there, both because of costs, because it is just so expensive to actually go all in for the full, um, for the full, uh, you know, state, uh, but also because of the diversity of the work that we need to do. South Florida is very different to Central Florida, the I four quarter to to North Florida, um, and you know we are the same candidate. We are going to have the same message, but in terms of audiences, in terms of program. Um, it's it's very complex and and very costly, and it's costly from a staff and overhead standpoint. It's costly from an advertising standpoint, and you really got to look at okay, well, if I'm up in Florida, does that have to close pathways for us because it is so expensive? And that's when you start really trying to think through not just state to state but market to market. We feel good. Uh, we feel very good about what we've been able to do fundraising wise over the last several months. But we also know that we are at a significant disadvantage to Trump. So, um, you know, the money that we're able to raise is not just to allow us to um, do the work uh, of advertising and, and having a, a broader footprint there, but it's also building our programs and, and making sure in light of what's happening in this country with COVID, with the fact that I believe we will probably be organizing virtually in many respects for the entire campaign. I think we will have physical, traditional organizing taking place as well, but we've got to be realistic. Um, There are going to be people we can't reach uh, in any way but virtually. So what does that mean in terms of how we've built the campaign, how we've restructured it? How do you rise up different uh, departments of the campaign? How do you think about the on the ground footprint and overhead and the things that you know we philosophically have believed about localized organizing uh, at the core of success certainly from uh, our Obama campaigns you know that can't happen in the same way and so there is an added complexity when you consider what that means but there also could be some added opportunity where um, we're able to reach scale uh, with some uh, less costs based on some of the programs that we're building or thinking about distributed organizing, thinking about digital organizing, um, you know, that has some real opportunities. So we're measuring it in both ways. But, um, you know, we I always kind of question, how do you go all in and what does it take? And then what can we do? What's possible to get us close to there? And and frankly, I don't think any candidate, including when um, President Obama run, ran, really went all in in a place like Florida, because, you know, you would be spending you know, on the order of hundreds of millions to really do the work there uh, at the size and scope of that state as you would look to other places. Right. I mean, we were fully funded, but 
you know, to your point, at a discount, you know. So that, I think, you know, people, you reported really strong fundraising numbers in May. I'm sure supporters of yours took great solace in that. But it's important for people to understand that that $80 million, as great as it was, like, I'd assume to do Florida in this scenario, even if you're careful and you get some of the efficiencies, you're talking 40 or $50 million, right, at a minimum. So folks have to understand that if they have the ability to give, they have to keep giving. Because for you to fully execute Florida, North Carolina, Arizona, and those three Midwestern states is an enormous amount of money before you get into Ohio and Texas and Georgia, right? So the scale is, is enormous. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24/7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast my days working taking care of my little ones can be a lot I checked out Care.com and it was so easy for me to find local, experienced, and background check sitters. Finding our babysitter was way more affordable than I thought. Care.com makes it super easy. Search for qualified candidates. You can view their profiles, read reviews and ratings, check their availability, send messages directly, get the help that you need. Care.com should be every person's go-to. Let's talk about something you mentioned. You said, you know, there's a lot of voters out there that really don't know Joe Biden. You know, even I think one of the stormtroopers from Trump's campaign said that this week, said people know of him, they don't know him. And it seems to me right now that is probably the most important uh, battle is the, the, the race to define Joe Biden, both his biography, what he's accomplished, what he stands for, what he'll do as president. How are you guys thinking about that? And when are we going to see uh, kind of... Um, uh, a lot of force, uh, you know, in terms of surrogates and advertising to fill in some of those blanks. Yeah, absolutely. So look, I think the first thing I would say is I think people, you know, fundamentally have the essence of the vice president. And so, you know, uh, there is a strong sense of who he is. And there is a strong sense of the sheer um, contrast between the vice president and Donald Trump. And I think you saw that on display over the course of the last few weeks as um, you know, frankly, this country is is both lacked uh, a leader in president and also seen one that is incredibly destructive. And so the contrast between, um, you know, steady leadership from the vice president to the chaos that Donald Trump is sowing to, you know, the experience that the vice president has. This is a place that 
we do know we have, you know, people know that he has a, a long a storied career that he was a vice president to President Obama, um, but they don't know his leadership role on uh, the Recovery Act. They don't know um, how much work he did around the auto bailout. So there's real opportunity to paint in that picture. They know who he served with. They know um, the leadership he's had, uh, but they don't have that full color version. And and then I think um, you know when they see that, and they're starting to see that over the course of again, just that strong contrast, whether it was one snapshot of the vice president, you know, on bended knee, having a conversation with a a young uh, boy um, to, you know, addressing the 100,000 deaths in this country because of COVID. Uh, And, you know, I think people are looking for uh, unity and healing as much as they are the path forward on the economy and and this crisis. And I think they, they obviously don't see any of that in, uh, in, in Trump and, and, uh, you know, see that in, the leadership and the voice that the the vice president has, and uniquely his leadership, which is driven uh, in equal parts on empathy and understanding what people are going through because of his own personal story, um, but also because real people are at the heart of who he is and how he's led. And so I think that's very strong. Now, how do we go out and make that case? Well, we do that in the ways we've been doing over the course of the last several weeks. Um, We do that with steady leadership. Um, We do that based on our own strategy and plan. Um, you know, we are not going to be diverted from what we need to do here by, um, you know, uh, Trump trying to distract us or others saying, well, you, you got to do this. The campaign's got to do that. You know, we have a very firm sense of what we have to do and how we have to go um, build this campaign and, and amplify and reflect on the vice president's leadership. Uh, and so I think you saw over the last few weeks how we do that. And we do that in a way that is, um, you know, high moments, uh, very clearly contrast, strong leadership. Um, making the case for the future and the path forward. Um, we're also going to be doing that in, in coming um, weeks um, with announcements of, um, you know, uh, our our added um, strategy on uh, amplification across advertising, across surrogates. As you mentioned, um, we have uh, just beefed up significantly our surrogate operation. Um, you know, one of the things that's that is a a real value add to us this campaign. Uh, and, and the party as a whole is how many strong leaders across our party and, and the deep bench that we have, which was obviously witnessed in uh, the primary campaign, not only just supporting us, uh, but out there doing the work, uh, bringing in and speaking with uh, their own networks uh, and, and their own voices, but also working together uh, across the board and, and everyone just uh, clear eyed about what's at stake. So we are, you know, if you see sort of day over day, you're going to see more and more of this work with us, um, but real growth on um, building out our amplification. And, you know, at the end of the day, you and I talk about we're campaign operatives, right? And and our job is to build campaigns and lead them and, and do the work, but you got to have the right person and the right leader. And I think Uh, The vice president is that person, especially for this time. And so it allows us to really um, take the sense and the essence that the American people have about him and really fill that in. And I think we're going to have, you know, we have a really strong plan and strategy that we're going to continue to execute on and, and some big announcements coming in coming days. That's great to hear. And I think this is very much connected to defining Joe Biden, because I think the central uh, goal there needs to be defining him on the economy, right? His values, what he's done, what he'll do. You know, in all the public research, uh, if it's accurate, you know, on attributes, you know, 
you know, handling the next pandemic, uh, caring about people like me, uh, you know, race relations. Uh, you know, Biden has a pretty significant edge over Trump. The one place where Trump still has an edge is people trust him more to rebuild the economy. So how do you guys think about approaching that? I'm not suggesting that you need to turn a eight-point deficit into a 20-point advantage, right? But you want to neutralize that as much as possible. Your point about the Recovery Act is a great one. I think most of the people are going to decide this election who aren't registered, who are registered, who might not turn out, that need to be mobilized, or true swing voters, they don't know that he led the Recovery Act. And, you know, given that that's the central question in this election, who can rebuild the economy, it'll be really important for them to understand that, not just that he did it, but what he did with it, right? But how are you guys thinking about the economic battle? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, you know, it, it is true to say that Trump, uh, you know, has had a, a long lifetime of a sense that, you know, he's a successful business person. Complete bullshit, but he's pulled it off. Right. Yeah, right, Well, right, I right, know, right? right? The apprentice, Steph, you're fired. I mean, that certainly was a huge reason why, uh, you know, the American people or, you know, some of them uh, voted him into office. But, you know, I, I think that the the economy was what Trump was banking on as his, uh, you know, path forward here. Um, and, you know, you, you even saw, uh, you know, what was it two weeks ago where they were talking and changed all their advertising to the great American comeback coming out of the jobs uh, numbers. You know, the reality is, though, because of his lack of leadership in what this crisis at this moment, he has significantly harmed himself in terms of where his strength has been uh, and done that repeatedly and also has missed the moment where this country is um, to suggest that there's this great comeback when people are still hurting. And, you know, certainly maybe the numbers are the numbers and, and they were more favorable than, than many thought for sure. But at the end of the day, average person, average voter is not feeling safe and confident and steady and stable in what's happening and, and really is looking for what, what is the path out of this? How, how do we get back to this new normal? And at every turn that Trump has had the opportunity to speak to that, uh, to reassure, to lead, he has missed the mark. So I think for us, our job has to be to, you know, again, we believe that this is going to be a referendum on Donald Trump. We know he does not want that, especially on the economy. He's desperate to find a path forward, uh, as we saw from, you know, the comeback story that is is not landing at all. And in fact, they've just changed traffic back to some of their other ads because uh, it doesn't feel like it was landing for them. Um, but we've got to make the case then of, of what we are going to do, both reinforcing the steady leadership, the experience, as you're saying, Recovery Act, um, that we have real opportunity to, you know, color in. But then what's our plan forward and what does that look like and how do we lead us forward? And 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 I think that that is something that, um, you know, we absolutely can do. We're, we're building towards uh, and I think is the real opportunity. People want to hear uh, how we get out of this because there is there's real fear and there's real uncertainty. And it's it's hard to see um, how do you open up safely and how do you think about that and how do you, you know, have in uncertain times someone that has. Uh, a sense of like how to use the government and, and industry and, and bring people together uh, to come up with a plan that's safe and appropriate, but that does both, takes care of public safety and takes care of the economy at the same time. And, and Trump has clearly shown that he's not been able to do that. We think we can continue to solidify that concern that people have and, and you know continue to push down those numbers for Trump while building ours up by showing not just our leadership now, but what our plan is and our path forward, reinforced by the fact that the vice president has done it before. Right. And everybody out there can help on that, right? I mean, I think that's the important thing. Everyone who's got a, a friend they can talk to or is on social media should spread, you know, the content you guys are putting out and others around 
what he'll do on the economy, where Trump's failed. I think that is just absolutely essential. So let's talk. You mentioned that you assume there's going to be uh, virtual organizing all the way through Election Day. Um, you've got, you know, Trump out there holding his rally of death, you know, this weekend. Let's hope that's not the case. Uh, so that's that's one side of the equation, right? I assume they're going to, you know, start putting a lot of staff on the ground and trying to do door knocking, hold big rallies and, and put people's health at risk. But, you know, you must be as campaign manager having to plan for a scenario where, you know, in the fall, you know, everything from Joe Biden's travel, you're not your vice presidential um, selections travel, your staff, you know, can do a lot on the ground. One where, unfortunately, we're going to be more locked down or there may be a blend of point bending on the state. Just talk about that's a huge challenge, I imagine, because you have to prepare for different scenarios. It sounds like you envision, uh, you know, a lot of digital and versional and relational organizing being core no matter what happens. But how do you, you know, how do you think through a strategy of, well, if they can, if Joe Biden can be on the road, you know, six times a day, that's one campaign. If he can't, this is another. Just walk through a little bit of the thinking there, which, again, I think on the Trump side, um, maybe they're doing more of it than it appears. But it seems like they're going to almost uh, operate as if the pandemic doesn't exist. Absolutely. Uh, you know, look, I think um, it's just incredibly reckless, to be honest. I mean, I think that, you know, the vice president believes we have a responsibility to ensure what we are doing is safe. Uh, and there are ways to do things safe. I mean, the vice president is traveling. He is doing events with real people. Um, this campaign is doing the work of voter contact, but we are not putting people in harm's way to do so. Uh, and, you know, we think that it's as much about role modeling, modeling as it is about, you know, ensuring that our leadership in this moment as a campaign is also a reflection of our leadership as president. And I think that that's something that, um, you know, you're, you're seeing in an in, uh, just an insane way with uh, what uh, Trump is doing this weekend. And not only that, are they doing the event? I think their campaign yesterday put out some kind of um, statement suggesting that we're just refusing to do rallies uh, because, you know, we, we want to hide in the basement, which like, you know, I, uh, for every person that said that to me, I would like them to look at the polls. But anyway, um, not that I want to over torque that, but, but still right there's, it's just like, uh, to me, it is such a dangerous thing to do. And it is so confusing when a president is showing up in these communities and saying, come to this rally. And, oh my God, we have X hundred thousand people that have signed up when every single person, uh, you know, knows that's not safe when leaders in those states are pleading with the vice, pre the president not to do it. So, you know, I just think that's dangerous. But more than that, I do not think that we need that to win. And that's fundamental. It is not just that we are in a pandemic that the campaign has to operate differently. This entire country and world has had to rethink how we interact. And we have found successful ways to do it. In fact, real opportunity with it, right? Greater reach. I mean, we are doing events and content online with our senior staff and surrogates where you know, we have hundreds of thousands to millions of people tuning in uh, and getting our content. You, you, you can't get that in a rally in the same way. Um, you know, we have figured out how to do uh, what I think is most core to what we need to do as a campaign and organizing, which is build community and build connection. And I think that that is so critical 
in this moment because that is what people are missing and lacking. And we say all the time, you come for the candidate, uh, but you often stay for the experience, the relationships, the volunteers, the impact that you have. So we've been hard at work trying to think about how do we fill that and fill that in ways that we're meeting people where they are and we're meeting them where they are at this moment, both in terms of what we're talking about. So we came out of the last two months um, where we weren't doing a lot of heavy political work. We were in connecting with people. We were checking in on them. What's going on in their community? How are they feeling? Um, you know, what are they open to? How, what's their comfort level in engaging with the campaigns? What do they think they can do to amplify in their own communities? You know, and we're building on top of that now, that amplification we just talked about and that you just talked about that is so important asking our volunteers and our supporters to share content, to be able to um, you know, tell people in their own lives why they're supporting the vice president or what's at stake. Um, and we have seen, in particular, if you look at the last two weeks, our list growth has just been immense. Um, we brought in over a million new people to our list that we are now communicating with and communicating in a way that we weren't able to reach in the same way previously because um, people are finding their way to us. And also because I believe that they look at this campaign as a place to have control and real impact when they see what's happening in the country. Maybe they can't get out of the house or they can only do essential movement um, now. Maybe they have an underlying health issue. Maybe they just feel like things are out of control and they have found a place to take action in our campaign. And we are creating the opportunity to do that. So yes, I believe that we will and need to be prepared for all um, potential scenarios. Um, but we're going to make sure that safety drives this. And I don't think that that's going to force us to skip a beat. We are going to have, um, you know, by the end of this month, hundreds of organizers, digital organizers, virtual organizers doing work in our battleground states built off of, um, you know, the, some of the our team from the primary to other former candidates to the work of, um, you know, a, a lot of different entities that have been uh, building up to this moment. Um, we're doing virtual house parties. We are uh, doing trainings and webinars. We're building the capacity so that our growth will allow us to have the, the reach that we need. Um, we're building up things like our distributed and digital organizing program, creating an entire new department, elevating it across the whole campaign, putting far more resources into it so that it, it is something that is core to how we reach people. Because again, even when we get to a point where we can safely and comfortably engage with voters, some voters are just not going to be able to do that. Maybe they have an underlying health issue. Maybe they are older. So we can't miss those folks. We have to make sure that we show up for them. And I think we've come up with a pretty good system. But we also cannot allow ourselves to get to a place where um, because our desire or our belief that historically, you know, to be successful, you have to have brick and mortar or the physical elements of campaigning. Um, you know, we can't allow a moment to, if, if that changes because stay-at-home orders get updated again, um, that that prevents us from doing our work. We've got to be able to do our work. And, and we also have to do it in, in a safe way that, that shows what this country needs in a leader and that we're reflecting that through the campaign. So it is definitely incredibly complicated. Um, it is really reinventing a new way to engage with people. But the, the positive is that we've all had to live through that. And we found these new norms and ways that, no, we wouldn't want to have to uh, exist virtually in the way that we have but we can do it and people are far more comfortable. And 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 at, the last thing I would say is one of the very interesting things, and I think good things, is that the contact rates on things like phones or texting has been 
uh, through the roof. And so our ability to reach people in traditional ways, and again, just finding ways to meet people where they are, has allowed that sense of connection that people are looking for. And we can do it over a phone call and we can have that quality. Um, you know, So the gold standard of door knocking is not the gold standard in a global pandemic, but building connection and meeting people where they are, creating that sense of community, um, whether it's digitally or virtually or through a one-on-one, um, through a volunteer, uh, that's the gold standard. And I think we've found a way to, to replicate it in that and build on it in, in a safe way. And are you finding... Um with younger voters, particularly sort of folks under 25, that your contact rates and your ability to engage with them is also um, higher than you might have expected? Yeah, you know, absolutely we are. I mean, I think, I, I mean, I'm not a young person, let's be clear. Uh, but, you know, I'm kind <laughs> of sick of talking to people in my own house too, right? So like there is an <laughs> element of like outlets that people are looking for, young people probably in particular. Um, but more importantly, you know, their voice has been called to leadership, you know, time and again over the course of the last, um, you know, decade and, and more. And and we're certainly seeing that in terms of what's happening uh, and has happened in, in, I think, a very positive, inspiring way um, with, uh, you know, the situation with George Floyd and, and so many others and just bringing voice to the systemic racism in this country and what needs to be done about it. That is young people driving that uh, and, and young people of color. And for us, we're, you know, we as a campaign are making sure that we are thinking about how we reach people, not just like from a tactical standpoint, but also having the conversations about um, where young people are. And we know, um, you know, that that young people in particular have had a really tough run, right? I mean, from an economic standpoint to um, climate to racial systemic uh, issues and, and violence to, to gun safety. I mean, you kind of uh, look at those issues. We know how important it is to meet young people um, where they are, but doing so by driving on the issues that really truly impact their lives uh, and allowing and empowering them to have a voice and lead and creating an openness to have conversations and to be able to do that, uh, you know, from all the areas that we're working on. So we really are focused on this. Um, this is something I think very important. Uh, I also, you know, I think that there are a number of things tactically that we are doing as a campaign, um, you know, a series of uh, climate justice uh, roundtables across the country to, um, you know, thinking about how do we talk about climate in, uh, you know, in ways that the, the vice president did yesterday, which is as much about racial justice as it is about climate. Uh, and all of these issues are so intertwined that young people have been speaking about uh, for a long time. So I think that there, for us, there's a lot of work to continue to do here um, and building ways from an issue base, from a, a coalitions base, uh, from a, a digital and virtual space, and then, you know, making sure that we are on the platforms that young people are on that we are doing the work of working with our surrogates and and giving uh, helping them help us give voice to who we are and that connection and having those conversations. Yesterday, um, we put out this tremendous video of the vice president speaking to a young staffer in January um, on our team about um, uh, police reform uh, and, and, you know, something that really you know, again, was in January, but just that one-on-one conversation and, and you know, the vice president having a real rich discussion from a perspective that is very different than his own. So those are the types of things that we're going to constantly be looking to do. Uh, and I think is, is sort of fundamental to how we're building the campaign. 
Right. So another place where there's uncertainty for you is whether there's going to be debates or not. So Trump and his campaign are still maintaining they may not do them. You know, my expectation is they're just trying to maximize their leverage with moderators. And particularly if he heads into the fall behind you guys, he's going to want to do them. But do you think there will be debates? Uh, And if there's not, how would that impact your strategy in the fall? Well, you know, as the vice president has said, uh, he cannot wait to get on the stage with Donald Trump. Um, And our belief uh, and what we want is to be able to debate. And we think that um, the American people are owed that. And, uh, you know, I think for for us as a campaign, um, you know, we will be prepared to work through um, and be ready for debates. And, you know, we will do whatever we can to make sure that they happen. And we think that that's a responsibility we have as leaders to stand up together and have a real debate on issues. And we also know that that's probably the last thing that Donald Trump wants to have to stand up and defend his record and defend what's happened in this country. And so, you know, we believe that this is an important thing in general. Every recent presidential campaign has had, I think, you know, what, two or three um, have been basically the norm. Obviously, we'll have to look at COVID and, and you know, whether a town hall, for instance, uh, is, is something that, you know, can be done safely. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is something that we want to happen. Now, if there isn't a debate, you know, our, our um, responsibility is to make clear why not and to find uh, ways to, to showcase how, um, you know, Trump is, is afraid to be out there and, and be able to defend his record and stand up next to, to the vice president. And, and so, you know, look, we, we expect, at least from what they've said and, and our hypothesis is that they are um, going to be very hesitant to do this, uh, very nervous about being on the same stage with the vice president, very uncomfortable uh, going through the commission, um, you know, in a way that, you know, that has already been locked and, and loaded for a while here. Um, so our goal is to do whatever we can to make sure that that happens um, and to make sure that we, uh, we build for that. So I'm sure you or members of your team are talking to the commission. Have you guys started direct conversation with Parscale and that crew? No, I think, uh, you know, all of that's a little um, premature at this point. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, we are working through our own plan um, on, you know, how we're going to engage with the commission. But, right. you know, we expect that that will come. Um, but we, you know, we also um, are pretty focused on the fact that there are uh, there's already an announced debate schedule. You know, it starts at the end of September um, and we're looking forward to being there. Um, and that that's really, um, you know, what we're going to be focused on. Right. Okay. So you're going to be announcing a running mate soon. I'm not going to ask you about the people, but from a, from a campaign, yeah, no, but from a campaign standpoint, I don't think people understand. So listen, having uh, a running mate, you know, there's a lot of positive to it, right? I mean, they can, in the old days when we traveled, right, they go to different states and they could do fundraising. They can still do that now. My guess is that for you will be a blend of in-person and virtual. But actually, like, it's hard enough to run a campaign when you've got one principal, right? <laughs> the absorption of another person who has their own history, their own success running elections, their own team. Now they need to be, you know, subordinate to you. Just talk about how you're planning to insert that person into your campaign. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, we are so excited about a running mate, uh, whoever she may be, uh, and, <laughs> you know, are um, looking forward to that. And we think that that is, you know, something that is just going to be as it always has. And and I, as I think back to the 08 campaign and the, the big announcement of the vice president as the choice and the, you know, the texting and going directly to the grassroots and you know, all of those things are, are just, you know, something that we're looking to and, and really excited about. And, and, you know, it is, as you say, it's, it's always um, an adjustment when you're, um, 
you're building out a campaign that started uh, for one candidate and now is is moving to a ticket. You know, I think we have some real opportunity there for us, um, both because, as you know, it it amplifies our ability and uh, to have more reach to be able to cover more terrain, whether that's virtually or not, um, and to you know continue to you know, essentially show uh, a, a significant decision of who the VP is uh, and the values he has and who he's going to be standing with. And so I think um, we take that very, very seriously, but I think it's a, a real opportunity for us across the campaign. You know, at the same time, I mean, look, we just came through transitioning into a general election during a pandemic with new leadership on the campaign and having to retool uh, basically every apparatus that we have because we were going into a different race. Um, and, you know, we were able to end the primary um, far sooner than people thought uh, and navigate to a place of, I think, really steady footing uh, over the span of, you know, uh, a month or two. And so, I think coming through that, we're, we're pretty well equipped to make this transition as well. And so that includes, you know, building out the team and, and the process of how that works and how do you make sure that you're thinking about supporting um, the running mate and, you know, what's the strategy behind what it will look like? The same exact scenario planning we're doing for the whole campaign about travel and um, highest best use and um, virtual versus not. And so all of those things, um, you know, will are, are just adding to that. But but because we've been building and uh, building anew for the the general, we're we're still in that build mold, and we're building and doing at the same time. But I think that gives us the the flexibility and the nimbleness to absorb a new operation and to do it in a way that we can do it in stride. Well, that's a very optimistic reading of things, and I think uh, <laughs> no, no, I think it's it Talk all. Talk to me later. Yeah, right. Or, no, it all sounds great. But I do think you know the job you've done. I mean, the the pivot from primary to general, particularly when you're running against an incumbent. Uh, you know, the scale of difficulty is enormous. The fact that you did it coming in new, uh, you know, you weren't part of the Biden campaign from the very beginning. You've got the pandemic. Uh, you've now got, um, you know, the emergence of uh, uh, and the importance of the Black Lives Matter movement. Again, always important, increased now. So I just want to tip my hat to what you've done under just extraordinary circumstances. So one thing I know you're wired this way, which is I think the best campaign managers, you know, their approach is if we're doing well, why aren't we doing better? And if we're up by two, why aren't we up by four? Right. So you're always thinking through, you know, what could go wrong, uh, you know, even if you're leading optimistically. So when, when you, Jen, when you think about um, if you come up short, I mean, what, you know, is it that maybe there's five to six percent of voters like last time go to third parties? Is it that Trump? I don't think there's any hope of Trump. Um, gaining any strength at all with traditional swing voters. But does he just do such a great job of registration and turnout, a la Bush in 04 in, uh, in Ohio, that somehow he's able to pull out a win, um, really bringing out every, um, you know, MAGA-like person? Um, is it that somehow Trump convinces people, yes, he's a complete and total asshole, but he's tougher than Joe Biden for this moment? Like, what what keeps you? I know there's a lot that keeps you up at night organizationally, resource-wise, but when you think about the big things here, what gives you pause? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think the number, well, the list is so long of uh, running, you know, sort of ignoring the top lines uh, that we have at the moment and always coming back to the fundamentals and focusing as much on, you know, what we need to fix and get better um, every single day um, is how... Um, you know, I'm I'm certainly wired. I think the thing that I'm probably most concerned about, um, honestly, is voting in this country. Yep. And I think that if we saw 
what happened in Wisconsin, which is, you know, the Trump administration and local Republicans doing all they can to sow chaos, um, not just to make it harder to vote, which we have always had to deal with, but to create chaos, to change the rules, to change them when nobody could could uh, adjust when it meant, you know, when are your ballots due? Um, you know, can you postmark it on the day of the election or are they due on the day of the election? Confusion about that. Um, limiting the number of sites that people can go to. So they're in line. All of those things um, we saw in Wisconsin, we saw again in Georgia. Uh, and, you know, we saw, uh, and we're going to continue to see, we, we saw uh, Jared uh, saying like, you know, whatever, I mean, just obviously not reading the constitution about the election. So um, I think that to me, um, voting rights and voting protection, it is something that has always been a big part of my portfolio over the last several presidential cycles. Uh, and it, I always have believed it is critical. But without the Voting Rights Act to protect uh, in places that we have typically needed that protection, and to add into the complexity of the fact that um, vote by mail alone isn't good enough. It's got to be vote by mail and safe in-person early voting and safe in-person election day voting where people want to do that. And that isn't just a question of do we have enough machines or uh, do we have the ability to make sure the ballots are correct and, and orderly? But do we have the opportunity for social distancing? Do we have the poll workers? Do we have um, the money for the wipes that people need to make sure that people are safe? Do we? Uh, how do we get to a place that we can make sure education is out there uh, so people know exactly what the guidelines are and that they can and we're doing all we can to protect it so that they don't change. So I think that's probably, um, you know, my one of my larger concerns and something that we're just so myopically focused on right now. Uh, I can't imagine a more complex voter protection operation than uh, what we are building from a, uh, you know, certainly we always are considering litigation and and we're always doing the work on the ground. But there are elements that that are just practical because of the pandemic where, you know, part of the issue in Georgia was they didn't have poll workers. And then they, they the people that were doing it, um, you know, because it's typically an older population, the training wasn't there. Um, and, you know, again, the timing changed. So how do we help on that? How do we make sure that we are not just doing what we've typically done, but we're actually thinking about, okay, well, should we be advertising on this? How do we manage the fact that these are going to look very differently in every state, which we are very well equipped to handle because we obviously have always had battleground states that are all vote by mail or have early vote by mail opportunities or very unique localized elements to it. Um, but we also have seen and we know that the Republicans not only um, are trying to sow chaos, but they are spending you know tens of millions of dollars to make it more scary uh, in some ways in their minds that they're going to try uh, for people to vote. And, and we can't allow that to happen. So I know that there is a path here and I know that we can organize and drive our way to ensure that people have uh, an open and flexible and safe way to participate in this vote. And, and frankly, there is some places where there's more opportunity, right? Where we saw applications being sent out to a wider audience of people so we could do the work of checking and chasing and all of that. Um, but I think that this is probably one of the larger concerns that looms over this this um, entire um, uh, election cycle. And we don't have the same uh, legal protections that we have had historically, which just makes this even more complicated. No, it's very scary. I mean, it's tragic for the country. But for you guys, I mean, to get clinical about it, it 
you could head into the election with enough vote to win, not just, you know, people saying they'll vote for you in polls, right, but people intending to vote. And because of state-sponsored suppression, uh, foreign efforts to confuse people, um, you know, because people, they don't want to stand in line for 10 hours, they're confused, they don't vote. So it's, so, um, no, I agree, that's a huge, a huge problem. So uh, whether it's on this issue of voter protection, or just generally, I'd like to end with Jen, how can people help you uh, and Joe Biden? Where should they go? What are your biggest needs right now? Um, I think uh, after listening to you, people have more confidence in the pathway here. But, you know, the discussion we just had, you know, is another reason why people can't be overconfident. It's going to take, you know, effort from everybody uh, to get Trump out of office. So so what do you need from people right now and, and where should they go to help? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking that. And, and you know, at the end of the day, we are not going to do this without people, you know, hundreds of thousands and millions of people helping the vice president and helping this country. I mean, we feel like this race is to save democracy. And I'm deadly serious about that. And we as a campaign are not going to be enough on our own. It is going to be people in their own lives, making sure that they understand what's at stake, that they are doing everything they can to educate themselves, that they are communicating to people in their own networks. And, you know, those folks young and old maybe who don't typically participate, or it is just much more complicated to vote this time around. How do we help? How do we make sure that we're showing up for folks in our own lives and we're making it clear what's at stake and what the opportunity is with Vice President Biden? And to do that, you know, we really need uh, all hands on deck. So um, whether, um, you know, that means your, your time volunteering virtually, you do not have to go to local uh, offices, uh, just plug into to the campaign, go to their website and sign up. And there are ways in any way you can to sign up um, to volunteer and participate and reach out, whether it's phone calls or texting or uh, virtual events um, or direct voter contact, digital um, you know, uh, uh, sharing. All of that is, is core and critical for us. Um, we have an app, a Team Joe app that you can download that allows you know this heavy relational organizing, which is just like I hate all the terms for organizing. It's just a fancy way to say talk to people you know, uh, and and bring them on board and bring them with you and and give them you know talk to them about what's going on, um, you know. And look, I can't um, uh, overstate um, the importance of donations. Uh, you know, if you have a buck to give, we need a buck, um, and that buck we will use to make sure uh, that we are able to win this election. Um, Donald Trump has a financial advantage. Um, we feel really good about what we've built and the numbers that we're raising. But, um, you know, we just unfortunately need to keep building up that war chest. And um, we know that Trump is is going to throw the kitchen sink at us. We have seen that that kitchen sink he's been throwing has not had the intended impact uh, that he has hoped. Um, but we know that we have to continue to compete. Uh, and as we were talking about earlier about the states, the cost. So, you know, a buck, five bucks, whatever you've got, we, we really could use it. There's a great event coming up next week with President Obama and um, Vice President Biden, a grassroots fundraiser. Uh, we're so excited about this conversation. And uh, if you guys can sign up, go to the website and, uh, you know, give us a buck and get on there and hear an awesome conversation from two um, just tremendous leaders. But at the end of the day, most important thing is make sure you do everything you can to show up in this election. Um, and that means vote. It means having the conversations. It means sharing content. And it means, um, you know, staying present because that's what it's going to take to win this thing.
Well, everyone, I hope you heed Jen's call. It's going to take everybody doing more than you imagined uh, to make sure we rid America of the threat uh, that unfortunately sits behind the Oval Office. Well, Jen, thank you for your leadership. I think the country and the world is going to owe you a big debt of gratitude. And also, it, it is not an okay situation that the only woman to lead a presidential campaign successfully is Kellyanne Conway, who uh, <laughs> we need to, to add you to that list and uh, actually uh, be the first woman to lead a Democrat to the White House, which will be an awesome um, I think a uh, uh, thing for the country and also will probably mean that there'll be a lot more Jen O'Malley Dillon's following in your footsteps. So uh, thank you. Good luck. And, and let everybody help Jen as much as we can. Thanks, Bluff. Thanks, everyone. Well, I hope you all have a better sense after listening to Jen O'Malley Dillon, uh, where the Biden campaign sees opportunities from an electoral college standpoint, from a demographic standpoint. I, I thought our conversation about the senior vote uh, was particularly important. How you can help, and I really hope all of you that are listening, I'm sure a lot of you are already doing something, but do more. Uh, or think about another something uh, that you could do to help Jen and her team help get Joe Biden across the finish line. And, you know, I thought uh, Jen's point about voting was really important. And it is really tragic to think that this election could come down to them fighting through with your help, hopefully, you know, voter suppression efforts, chaos efforts, disinformation. And that just puts another burden on the campaign. So the way to think about it is, okay, you've registered a voter or you've convinced someone who wasn't going to uh, vote to vote or swing voters now decided uh, perhaps to vote for Joe Biden, who was torn about their vote, but they get, you know, confused or they're worried about their safety or, um, you know, they get told that, you know, early voting is a different day than it is, whether that's, you know, advertising from the Trump campaign or from from Vladimir Putin. So all of that's tragic, but the campaign has to deal with it. You know, they've got to organize their way through it, and that's going to require your help. So, you know, I'm sure many of you have already been motivated to help Joe Biden reach out to voters, make contributions, share content. But if that's something that interests you, and I'm sure it interests all of us, there's concrete things you're going to be able to do to make sure people can exercise their franchise properly and completely. So it's a good reminder that no matter what the polls say, and I think Jen was really smart to caution all of us that these polls are going to tighten, uh, even if Joe Biden heads into the election with a small lead, you know, that leads at risk. That support that he has doesn't materialize into enough vote in enough places. So we all need to be vigilant, not just to make sure we're helping Joe Biden, but to protect our democracy. Uh, so thanks for tuning in and look forward to being with you guys next week.